All right, open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, that's page 984 in the pew Bible there in front of you. Hey, look, if you don't have a Bible, congratulations. You can't say that anymore. That's yours. We want that to be a gift to you because what we believe here at Michael Memorial is that, um, that we have nothing without the Word of God. We, we, it's all we ever know. It's the only authority we really have in our lives. And so we, uh, we, we stick to it and we believe that and we preach the Word of God. And more than that, we want you to read and study the Word of God. The reason why we believe in D groups and discipleship is 100% because we have a love and passion for the Word of God. So if you're not reading your Word of God every day, the co- your copy of Word of God every day, well, then you should start doing that. If you don't have one, you have one now. So you should start doing that. If you're already doing that, we'll keep doing it. So this morning, I want to, we're going to continue the, uh, we're going to continue our study in belonging, or belong, and so we've been looking through uh, John chapter 4, as you're, as you're turning there, I want to kind of catch you up to speed with where we've been. So we started off uh, discussing this conversation of belonging, that belonging really is a byproduct of salvation, which we'll talk more about this morning. But the reason why belonging matters is that all of us were, just like the song, uh, Christ Be Magnified, which is one of, man, it's one of my favorite songs ever, that we really are created. If we could ever, if we could just find our, our inner, the inner cry of our hearts, our native cry, really it would be to glorify God. And really it would be to be in relationship with God, and it would be to belong to God. But sin obviously separates us in that, and sin caused a little bit of issue in, in what we call belonging. And so we, we started off in belonging, and we looked at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman there in John chapter 4. And so, uh, so, so um, Pastor Tony started us off in explaining that Jesus is in the in-between. And he, this woman was seeking belonging. And she was kind of lost in her way. She was shameful. She was there in the middle of the day. And there's all kinds of things that, that show us that she was really seeking belonging, even though she may not have realized that. We also, a few weeks later, we talked about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, just the, the, the passage before the woman at the well that, uh, that Nicodemus was also looking for belonging. And so here we get to the end of this passage, which most would say, or some would say, doesn't necessarily uh, belong. <laughs> but but, it, um, but if, you, if you really look uh, in, more, in more closer detail, there's a lot to learn here. So we're going we're gonna to look at the few verses just after the story of the woman on the well. So we're going to be in John chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 43, 44, and 45. We're just going to look at these three verses, and we've got a lot to cover, so stick with me. Hey, look, I just want to start, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to give you a disclaimer. I know this is hard to believe, but people blame me for talking fast. So if I get really excited and I start talking fast, just raise your hand and I'll slow down. It's okay, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Shut up, Josiah. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you got a haircut, bro. Looks good. Josiah FaceTimed me the other day, and he said, hey, look at my new haircut. And I said, thank goodness, you don't look like a shaggy dog anymore. It's true. One day, one day he'll look like me. What's funny about that? Hey, I like the amount of bald people we got here. All right, what are we talking about? All right, John chapter 4, verse 43. Here we go. Y'all ready? Ready to get after it? John chapter, 44, chapter 4, verses 43, 44, and 45. Here it says, after the two days he departed for Galilee. Now remember, he had just spent two days in Sychar with the, in the, the village that the woman was from. After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so here we see that Jesus is, uh, Jesus has intention. Jesus has purpose. Jesus was relentlessly focused on his purpose for coming to the world to seek and save the lost. Jesus was relentlessly focused on his purpose for coming to the world to seek and save the lost. And every single area of Jesus' life, if you remember what I just said a second ago, that Pastor Tony explained that that Jesus was in, that we all live in this in-between, and Jesus was in, was in the in-between, and he met people in the in-between. That no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're going, no matter how we're living, no matter what's happening or our situation or our context, we're always in this in-between tension of where we've, where we've come from and where we're headed. Nobody really ever feels like they've arrived where they're wanting to get to, right? We're always on our way. But we see here that Jesus is intentional and he's purposeful in every single thing that he's doing, even in the in-between. Jesus was on his way to Galilee. So he, had be, he had been in Judea at the, at the Passover feast. And so he leaves there and he, it says, the, the, the Bible says that he had to go through Samaria, which we're not really sure if he would have, Jews would have avoided that or not. We assume that they probably would have because Samaritans were half-breeds and so they were like half-Jew and half-Gentile and so they, they really... Uh, Jews wouldn't have associated with them, at least we know that, probably wouldn't have gone through their, their, their town, or the, at least their country of Samaria. But it says that he had to go through, he had to pass through Samaria. And so when he gets there, he's, uh, he's missional. And when he gets there, he understands that, that there's a reason why I'm here. There's a reason why this woman's here. There's a reason why this time and this situation has happened the way that it has. So his timing, his location, his sending away of the disciples just before he starts his conversation with the woman at the well shows us that he's extremely intentional and he's purposeful. We see that Jesus is not operating out of coincidence. We see that he, every single moment and every single day of his life is on purpose. And it's not an accident that he shows up. There's no accident that you're here this morning. There's no accident that you got stuck behind that car going 20 miles an hour on John Clark Road. Anybody but me? And it was raining, so I'm like, you know, I want to drive fast and dangerous. But there's no accident to why you're here. I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're here because you're here every week. Maybe you're here because you feel like you have a lot to be thankful for. And Thanksgiving has got you, I don't know, wanting to be here. Maybe Christmas is coming up. And you say, hey, it's Christmas time. You know, joy to the world. Jesus is the reason for the season. So I'm going to go to church this morning. Maybe you got bamboozled by your friend. I don't know. I don't know why you're here. I have no idea, but I can promise you this. You didn't walk in these doors and Jesus go, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. I'm sorry, but it did not happen. It didn't happen. You're here on purpose. You're here for a reason. You're here for a reason. And Jesus tells us, or the Bible tells us that when we gather together as the church, that he's with us. He's here in our midst. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but you're encountering Jesus and you're encountering the living God. And there's no accident in that. There's intention and there's purpose. We see that Jesus is so missional in all of his intention. We see that Jesus has, uh, he has us on his mind, us on his heart all the time. It always has been, it always will be God's will and God's heart to reveal himself to mankind. We see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I'll curse you and to you and in you, talking to Abraham, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. This wasn't just a Jewish situation. So Jonah gets called by God to go to Nineveh, and he hated Nineveh because he's racist. 
which is stupid, by the way. I don't know if y'all know that. But he says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly because the people that he hated, they had repented and God had forgiven them. And this is what he says. He gets mad at God. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah was mad that God is the type of God that he is. He's missional. He has all of us on his mind, not just Jews, not Gentiles, everybody. What does it say in John chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, the world's on his mind. Second Peter chapter 3. Y'all convinced yet? I don't know. Let's keep going. John chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. He's patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What did they say in Sychar? Where the woman, in the, well, woman at the well had gone and shared her testimony. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Just like Pastor Matt here just a moment ago, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, plural antecedent, third person plural antecedent of, of, the, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I, com- I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, familiar and unfamiliar. Once again, there's no accident that you're here, and there's no accident that any of us are here. There's no accident that anything really has ever happened. Jesus knows what's happened, and he's well aware. It's not like he caught him off guard. But in his intention and in his purpose, in the way that he's going, in his, in his purposeful steps, we see the heart of God. Because Jesus is God, right? And we see all throughout the whole Bible, the whole time, God had one thing on his mind. Us. He had us on his mind. He had a lost and dying world on his mind. People say, well, he he chose the Jews. Yeah, if you read the Old Testament, he chose the Jews so that they would be different, so the Gentiles would be saved. The whole reason that any of us in here are saved, God so graciously removed the blinders that the God of this world has over our eyes he so graciously removed those, showed us the gospel, not for you, but for the next person. How selfish could we possibly be to ever think that it's not for somebody else? We miss this so often. We miss that Jesus is not just intentional, but my goodness, he's missional. And he loves the world, and he loves me, and he loves you. I don't know why. I can't quite figure that out, but he does. He does. All right, so here we are in verse 44, where it says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. So this verse seems oddly placed, which usually means that we should pay special attention to it. You know, every room I walk into, people pay special attention because I always seem kind of odd in the room. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Maybe not. So, good morning. Y'all all all right? Hey, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Did y'all eat a lot? I did. I draw here too. All right. So, anyways, so look, Jesus says that it well. It says that Jesus prophesied that a, that a, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. It seems very strangely placed, and so usually we should pay close attention to those verses, those sentences that seem like well, they don't really belong. Well, they they do. I mean, they're written on purpose. Remember the whole purposeful, intentional, missional thing. Yeah. So, 
Here we see in some translations, so let's see, uh, let's see, the ESV, NIV, and, and CSB, all of those translations have parentheses. All the other ones don't, so if you have like an NIV or, in, I mean, uh, like an NLT or something like that, you won't see parentheses, but that's okay because I'm, I'm going to explain that if you have a, a new King James, if you have a King James, get a Bible you understand. Why not? So, yeah, seriously, I mean, these and those, come on, we don't talk like that anymore. It's a bad translation. Anyways, so... There's parentheses there because remember, John is writing this after the fact. And so John, as he's writing his letter, he knew what Jesus would later say about his hometown. So he, he supplies some context here. Does that make sense? He supplies some context here so that we can better understand that Jesus, after two days, he departed, went to Galilee, went to his hometown. And it says, and, and John is, is kindly, and the Holy Spirit leading him is kindly reminding us, hey, by the way, remember what Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so he kind of provides some context here. And so I, I want to spend just a second to talk about this. The Greek word here that's translated as honor can also be translated as valued or precious or price. And so, uh, so maybe it, it would read, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no value in his hometown. Why is that? Well, because we're familiar. The saying here is helpful. Familiarity breeds contempt. It's helpful in understanding this a little bit. The understanding here is dignity. Contempt is a, a feeling of less than, meaningless, or beneath consideration. You see, there's a statistic show that, I can't remember what the exact number is, it's like 85%, 75-85% of, of, of car accidents happen within like a 10-mile radius of your home. And why is that? Because you're there all the time. You feel like you don't have to pay attention. You know, that dog's always there, even if you're like me. <laughs> no, but, I mean, you know, that dog's always there in the way. That trash can's always there. Just hit the trash can. Who cares? It's always in the way. You always see it. You see it every day. You don't pay attention. Well, you make the, you know, I, oh, did I, did I not stop, officer? What are you talking about? I pass through the stop sign every single day. Well, that doesn't mean you didn't stop today. <laughs> but the, you, you're familiar. You don't pay as much attention. You're familiar. It's beneath consideration. Well, the opposite of this would be respect or curiosity. It would be that See, you're curious about things that are new to you. Every expert from out of town. So I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I'm the student pastor here, and so I deal with teenagers. And if you've ever dealt with teenagers, you know. And I, I tell the teenagers this all the time. I don't believe this, but I just remind them this all the time. I, I know that your parents are the dumbest people on the earth. Right? Anybody who has teenagers knows that your parents are, I mean, seriously, it's stupid. I mean, they're so dumb. It's amazing. They can, you know, tie their shoes and not hurt themselves. I mean, the fact that they would give you any advice, I mean, these are just dumb people, right? I mean, come on, you're a teenager, right? I mean, your parents are just dumb people. Well, of course, that's not true. You ever been in a situation where you maybe coach your kid or, I don't know, your kid's your teenager, maybe not even teenager, maybe younger than that, but especially teenagers fight this all the time where You've told your kids something a thousand times, and then Pastor Chandler shows up and goes, hey, you should do this. And they go, oh, what a great idea. You know, and I hang a sign in my office that says, I told you so, I knew, you know, it was my idea. No, it's not my idea, teenagers, by the way. I just talked to your parents. They said what they've been telling you. I just tell you what they've been saying. Because usually it's right. They're not all that dumb. But the truth is we're not impressed with what we experience all the time. We're not impressed with people that we're around all the time or things that we hear all the time. You see, Nicodemus was, he was impressed with Jesus' teaching ability. Why? Because it was different. It was different. 
He was curious about being born again. He never heard this. He says, clearly you're from heaven, clearly. I mean, you, I've never heard anyone speak with such authority. The woman was shocked that Jesus had told her all she'd ever done. What does she do? She runs to the town, and she's excited and eager to tell everybody, hey, you've got to come meet this man. He told me everything I've ever done. You're not going to believe this. She never experienced anything like this. It was unfamiliar. It was shocking. The Samaritans, when, Jesus, when the woman gets there, they ask Jesus, hey, will you stay for, will you stay for a little while? We've got to hear more about this. We've got to hear more details because this does not make sense. This is so different. Unfortunately, the attitude of the people in Jesus' hometown, Galilee, was less than impressed with who Jesus was. In Galilee, they knew Jesus. He was from there. It was his hometown. I know it seems crazy to us. We oftentimes wish that we could live with Jesus. We wish we could physically see him. We wish we could... We could touch him. We could hold his hand. We could walk with him. We could just, some of us maybe touch the, the, the cloak of his garment. Maybe he could heal us. We long to experience a, a physical Jesus, and we can't wait when we sing songs like King of Kings, and we say, man, there, there's a day coming that we'll get to see him, and it'll all be worth it. We long for that day. And it seems crazy that people from Jesus' hometown, they had seen the miracles they had seen they knew him they knew him personally they knew him well but he had no honor why because well he was familiar verse 45 says this so when he came to galilee the galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast to which everyone in here should go Uh he had no honor he had no honor in his hometown. But, and then the very next verse says, so, remember, Jesus had no honor, so he shows up and they welcomed him. What? That doesn't make sense. That seems backwards. It almost seems like it maybe negates what verse 44 says. Well, if he has no honor, then how'd they welcome him? I don't understand. Didn't you just say, that that word is, can be understood as dignity? That doesn't make sense. Why would it be, why would he be welcomed in a place where he had, quote, no value? Well, because there's a significant difference in welcoming Jesus and honoring Jesus. Jesus had clearly done some incredible things at the feast. The very people that didn't see him as valuable, well, they were they were unimpressed by him, but at the same time, they welcomed him, and it says, because of what had happened. Now, if you're anything like me, the version of Jesus I'm about to tell you about is like by far my favorite version of Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't have different versions necessarily. I probably shouldn't say that, but he has lots of characteristics and lots of sides to him, like me and you, you know? So what exactly happened at the feast? What exactly happened at the feast? John chapter 2 tells us. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. If you've read this, you're going, oh, yeah. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this version of Jesus, I absolutely love it. <laughs> that would be so much fun. If all of a sudden, well, what would y'all do if I just started grabbing things, just throwing them everywhere, and I was like, ah, this is ridiculous, started throwing things. I wouldn't do that because Pastor Tony would kill me. But, and he's, he's scary. But anyway, he, I feel like Pastor Tony likes this version of Jesus too, by the way. So why would the Galileans welcome him because of this? Well, see, Galilee... Galilee derives from a Hebrew word that means a small pocket of boldness. And the reason why they had gained this, or were named this, they had gained this reputation of being this unhinged, heathen people. They had a revolutionary spirit about them. So, of course, they were enamored with what had just happened at the feast. You see, here comes Jesus with no honor, no value, no dignity, no real dignity, no personal value to them. They knew him. They were unimpressed with him. But they had just heard about he went in the temple and had the boldness to flip tables over. I mean, if you're, if you're a zealot, hey, I'm in. They liked this version of their hometown guy. They knew, man, this is somebody we can follow after. Remember what the disciples said. The disciples, they said, are you now going to give the kingdom back to, back to us? I mean, is this, is this going to happen? He had died, he came back to life, and they said, oh, now's the time, buddy. You're about to cut the head off the Romans, and here it is. And he goes, no, I'm actually going to leave you, and I want you to love those who hate you. And they're like, oh. And some of us, even me, sometimes go, oh, I don't want to. Jesus, I want to, can you come just cut the heads off those people? That'd be cool. But, you know, he says we have to love them. He says we have to love them. You see, the Galileans recognized Jesus' ability to satisfy their longings, but they failed to see their need for belonging. Remember, where we, remember how we got here? The conversation with Nicodemus. He says, hey, um, I see that you, you have a power of te- and a teaching ability that's just remarkable. I got to hear more. And he says, well, you got to be, he said, how can I do this? You got to be born again. And he starts asking questions, and, he's, and we, we later see that it, it sounds as if Nicodemus maybe had, had placed his faith and trust in Jesus, maybe later in John. I mean, what about the woman at the well? Same thing. She's, she's mesmerized. She's amazed with what Jesus could do, but, but it really wasn't that she didn't say, hey, she didn't run back to Sychar and say, hey, you got to come here. you got to come get everything you've ever done told to you. No, that's not what she said. What did she say? Come meet a man. Who told me everything I'd ever done. She wasn't, she wasn't obsessed with what he could do or being able to satisfy some longing that she had. She didn't say, hey, he took my shame away. That's not what she said. She said, you've got to meet this man. See, Jesus was well aware behind the reception of the Galileans. He was well aware. And in spite of their self-centered thoughts, that they, they, they saw that their longings could be filled, that this, maybe he could, maybe he could, I don't know, overthrow the Romans, or maybe, maybe he could help us fight. He has a power. Jesus knew that, but what'd he do? He still went back home. And when they welcomed him, he wasn't fooled by that. And he knew, because what he, he later said, I have no honor there. 
but he still went, which is very interesting because he knew the importance of ministry to the most familiar people. You see, going back home to the most familiar people, that's often the deepest level of unbelief. It's the most familiar. They need proof. They need hard evidence. They've seen, they've heard, they know Jesus. They've heard about what he's done. They've seen it. They got it. Understand it. They've read the Bible more times than me. But Jesus knew that he knew he had to go back home to those people that knew him really well. He knew he had to go back home to, to do ministry. He didn't say, well, they're familiar and they know it. And when I get there, they're just going to welcome me. They don't really care about me anyways. He didn't say that. What did he say? I'm going to go home. People that encountered Jesus seemed to be most concerned with his functional benefits and are least interested with him as a person. Jesus can't be welcomed into our homes for his function or what he can do. We can't ask Jesus to come into our lives to dress it up and fix it up and maybe create some peace in our lives. Does that happen? Well, sure it does. But that's not, that's not what it's about. It's about his person. He must be honored for who he is and the fact that he's there. Belonging, among many other things, is a byproduct of salvation. We must only believe in him to find salvation, and then true belonging is given. And when you feel lost and you feel purposeless and you feel maybe helpless, hopeless, hurting, painful, we find belonging in him only through salvation. Nicodemus asked Jesus for answers, but Jesus knew the insider as a self-righteous religious leader needing salvation to then belong to him. The woman at the well asked Jesus for water. But Jesus knew the outsider as a helpless social outcast. She needed salvation to then belong to Jesus. The town of Sychar, where she was from, they wanted a better understanding of the woman's testimony. And they saw that Jesus could teach them about those things, and he could explain the things, but, but Jesus saw the Gentile Samaritans, of all people, Gentile Samaritans, as a lost people needing salvation to then have belonging. A desire for Jesus' function makes him incidental. A desire for Jesus' Jesus's person makes him focal. See, if Jesus is incidental, if we just want the things, that maybe the peace or, I don't know, maybe the belonging. I, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know. But maybe if we want those things, anything could fulfill it. You see, that's what, that's what I mean by a desire for Jesus' function makes him incidental. It just by happenstance. See, I, I want peace in my life, so, well, Jesus can give me that. I, I want this in my life. Well, Jesus can give me that. I, Jesus can give me these things, and therefore, I, maybe I can latch on to him and, and fall in love with the things of him. Maybe I can have his function. Anyone that can feel those desires will do, unless the person is the desire. So I'm um, I know several of you have read this book. It's called Transforming Prayer by Daniel Henderson. And he, he shares a story early in the book that uh, he says that 
a father sitting there reading the newspaper one night. And his son, you know, I don't, I don't know if y'all's toddlers ever do this, but they can get on your nerves. And so he's reading this newspaper, and his son keeps coming to him. He's poking. Daddy, 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 daddy. What? Daddy, daddy, what? What? Daddy, daddy, look. Daddy, look. Oh, that was cool, buddy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. You know? So he's reading the paper, and he says that what the father did, he said, I've got, I've got a genius idea. He turns to, the, to a map, a picture of a map in the newspaper, and he, he, t- he t- tears it out, and he rips it up, and he says, hey, listen, son, when you put this back together, then we can play. So... His dad, so the dad says, oh, this is, <laughs> this is awesome. So he gives him the whole pile of jumbled mess, and he hands it to him, and he goes, here, t- figure that out. So, his son, so just a few minutes later, his son comes back, and he's got it all taped together. And he says, what in the world? When did my son learn so much about geography? Maybe that tuition's worth it. And he says, son, where did you learn that from? How did you do that? And he says, well, daddy, there's a there's a man, there's a picture of a man on the back, and I knew when I got the man together that, well, the world came together. And it's interesting that we go to Jesus and we see that maybe our whole world's falling apart. Maybe we go to Jesus and we see that we want his function. We want what he can do. Just like the Galileans and a lot of other people in the Bible. And people maybe you know, maybe yourself. And we go to him and we say, can you put my world back together? And Jesus says, no, but I can put your man back together. And when you get yourself put back together by Jesus, then, well, your world comes together. He later says, Daniel Henderson later says in the book, so many times we're like the little boy with cut up newspaper pieces strewn all around him. The nature of life, the manipulations of other people, the spiritual attacks on our souls, Leave us feeling like we're holding a jumbled pile of nonsense that has no rhyme or reason to it. But when our Savior, quote, puts the man back together to make us right first, then in so many ways the world comes back together. Evangelism or belonging oftentimes is mistakenly sought after to fulfill desires or fix problems, but instead... It's to reveal the reality of the Messiah. What does Jesus do in every evangelism situation of the Bible? What does he do? He goes and people are mesmerized by what he's doing. And then he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, I can make people like you. He doesn't say, hey, hey, I can, I can heal your, I can heal your, your, your uh, paralyzed state to the, to the man in Mark chapter 2. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says your, your sins are forgiven. What does he do? He goes and... He personally cares for them. He personally steps into their life. He doesn't just fix things. But he personally involves himself and reveals himself. The question is not, would, would you like someone to fix your situation, but rather, would you like to belong to someone? Just in this short chapter, chapter 4, Nicodemus was blinded by his religion The Samaritan woman was blinded by her shame and the Galileans were blinded by their familiarity. The most effective evangelism strategy is a personal encounter with Jesus. The driving factor of welcoming Jesus cannot be his function. 
We can't welcome him. We can't see him coming. And we, maybe someone in our family gets saved. Maybe we show up to church and we see, wow, look at the joy that these people have. Look how together they seem. Wow. Let me welcome him into my life while he has no honor. You see, that makes him obligatory. That makes him obligated to be a person. And like I said earlier, that really anybody will do. See, some people love Christmas time, but I get a little aggravated at Christmas time. I'll be honest. I'm more of a Thanksgiving guy myself. I like that. Well, well, let's, let's just face it. I like Thanksgiving because my love language is food. And, you know, it's a good time. But Christmas is good. Christmas is good. I understand. But I, I'm not a big gifter. I'm not a big, I don't like gifts a whole lot. And here's my problem with gifts. This is a, it's not that people would give me things or that it's really, it's really more that I have to give them things. No, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not a big gifter. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to me that you would give me a gift. I mean, hey, I like gifts. I'll take them. I'm really appreciative for them. But here's what, here's what it is that about Christmas time that really just drives me nuts. I feel like, and this is not true, so if you've given me a gift or you plan on giving me a gift, hey, come on, I'll take it. But, you know, I feel like maybe you're doing it just because it's Christmas time. Do you ever feel like that? So does your family do this? Everybody's got to have the same amount of gifts or the same numps, the same like monetary value of gifts. So my grandmother, this she cannot watch this. I will be so dead. All right, I can't believe I'm saying this. All right, so my grandmother, well, my mom is like everybody's got to have the same number of gifts. If you got ten, I got ten. You know, but my grandmother, listen, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. She will give you a card that has you know, Merry Christmas, I love you. And it has to the cent, to the cent, whatever will equal up everyone's monetary value of their gifts. It's like, you know, oh, look, I got $37.43. Why? And she's like, well, because Destiny got, and her gifts equaled up to this. And yours, and I wanted everybody to have $100 worth of stuff. And I'm going, that makes me so mad. Oh, it just draws me nuts, you know? Because I don't like that. I, I feel like it's obligated. I feel like it takes away from the gift, you know? I feel like it, it just lessens the reason why you're giving it. And every grandmother in the room is going, shut up. Take the microphone off. I hate you. Hey, you could be my grandma, and I love you. Just don't do that. That makes me mad. I'm not ungrateful. It just, you know. Why am I defending myself to you grandmothers? I love you. Hey, just, it's wrong. Don't do it. All right. So we cannot, we cannot desire that we, we just get these gifts and maybe a person can fulfill that gift. That's not the point. We want Jesus maybe around our homes or affiliated with us because of the love and joy he brings. He, he can ease tensions and can offer resolve and impossible difficulty. But his function is merely a byproduct of his person. So let's go back to this, this passage here. Let's go back to this passage here. So Jesus says that, it was, well, John tells us that he goes back to his hometown. And he gets there and when he says, remember, he has no, Jesus says later he has no honor in his hometown. And remember, he says that, that, you know, he's here, he's in his hometown. But then John says, but they welcomed him because of what they'd seen at the feast. And they felt that he could satisfy these longings. And they felt that, man, he can be kind of our hometown guy and he can, he can, he can help us. And when the wow factor of Jesus feels absent, like there's no, wow, he can help us. 
wow, he can, you know, if you, if you go home maybe or you go to people that are most familiar with Jesus, they say, well, I've heard that he came back to life. I mean, in the South we experience this a whole lot more than in, anywhere else in my opinion. But, but you say the word, you say Jesus, people go, yeah, 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 that Jesus guy's pretty cool. Pretty cool? He died and came back to life. What are you talking about? He's pretty cool. He's way more than pretty cool. He's incredible. He's amazing. He's everything that you could ever ask for. He's it. But we experience this all the time because familiar, familiarity is, is difficult. It's difficult to overcome, and even Jesus overcame it. But the point is, in light of that, he's still intentional, he's still missional, and he went back home. He went back home. Sometimes the easiest place for ministry is to the religious insider, or maybe even a foreign land. But our first ministry is at home. You ever feel like it's easier, it would be easier to do ministry to people who never heard of Jesus before? You ever felt that way? Say, man, if, if I could go to the African brush and people had never heard of Jesus, or maybe downtown Gulfport, hello, but if I could go to the African brush and there would be uh, cannibals and and it would be, you know, no, no water, and it would just be the worst place that you could ever imagine living, but people had never heard the name of Jesus. I could do ministry there. I could do it. I could go and tell them, hey, listen, there's this guy who came to earth, and he, he's God, and he's man, like at the same time, and he's, he's, he's the God-man who lived a perfect life. And not only did he live a perfect life, but he actually was killed on my behalf and your behalf because he sin separates us from this same very God who came to earth to die for us. And then he came back to life. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, every time I tell Thomas, Thomas, what did Jesus do? He goes, he came back to life. And I go, yeah, he did. Woo! And we get super excited about it. And every stinking time that I think about it, I'm like, wow, he came back to life. And I think if I could just tell somebody that for the first time, it would be incredible. It would be so cool that I'd be so excited. I'm like, well, no wonder Jesus came to, when Jesus was on his way, he stopped by, he knew he was going to Galilee where he was just going to get bad because everyone knew about him. And so I'm talking too fast. Sorry, Destiny, I'm sorry I'm slowing down. So on his way to Galilee, he goes, let me stop by Samaria because I know those jerks in Galilee are just going to, they're just going to, you know, be used to me and they're not going to really care. They're just going to want me for my things. And so let me go to Samaria. So he stops by Samaria and they go, wow, you are awesome. We say, well, no wonder he did that. It makes perfect sense. But Jesus, Jesus came to the house of Israel first. Why? Because those that are most familiar, those that know the most about Jesus, those that grow up around Jesus, they know Jesus, they've heard it, they've read the Bible through and through. They know everything about him there is to know within reason. They know the fruits of the Spirit. They're in a D group. They're in a community group. Heck, they teach the, D, the community group. Those are the very people that are the most dangerous for the kingdom of God. Don't neglect the familiar. I catch myself I catch myself all the time that in student ministry, the, the, the students that show up and their families are lost and they've never been to church before and they get 
what we call radically saved as if there's a not radically saved. And then all of a sudden, they, they just get on fire and they can't believe this news that they've heard. It's this incredible first time to ever hear the gospel. And they take it and they run to their schools and they say, listen, I got to tell you about this guy named Jesus. I got to tell you about this man. Listen, come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. And they're blown away. And then we have teenagers, and this is not true in our church, praise God, but I see it all that I've seen it, where you have teenagers that grow up in church and you go, hey, listen, Jesus died for you. And they go, hmm, I know, I know. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe we sing a song that says, you know, on the third day he came back, he came back to life. He died. He died and came back to life. And, and I don't know, maybe we sing that song like this. Yeah, what's, what's for lunch? Where's, where's Pastor Tony? I'm tired of this guy. You know, I mean, that's... It's familiarity. See, those at home is so valuable. Think of the the knowledge that you have that's so far beyond the outsider. Ministry at home is so important. What does Jesus say about ministry at home? What does he say? It's a severe and painful reminder in Matthew chapter 11. He writes to, or says to Capernaum, his hometown, that they're in Galilee. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, yikes, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. John MacArthur says you're better off to be a condemned homosexual than you are a condemned religious Jew painful. It's painful. And if I'm honest with you, I don't like that reality at all. I don't like that. You know why? Because I'm surrounded by people at home. I'm surrounded by people who hear the gospel all the time. And I read stories in the Bible like Nicodemus and and like the Samaritan woman, and especially the Samaritan woman, I read this and I go, man, wouldn't that be so cool? And then these words ring in my mind that, Chandler, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom. If the signs and wonders that have been done at home, where Jesus had done personal ministry, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until that day. Oftentimes we feel like the Galileans. And we, well, quite honestly, we're not interested in the person of Jesus, but we're interested in the things of Jesus, in the function of Jesus. But when we find ourselves there, we need to seek the face of Jesus, seek the face of God. See, Moses received instruction from God because he had experienced God. He didn't just come, he didn't go up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. 
when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had the Ten Commandments only because he had met with God. Peter and John had boldness. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. They were uneducated, untrained men. They had been with Jesus. They didn't know all about him. They had been with him. Paul and Silas, they, well, the, the people said these men have turned the world upside down. Why? Well, what does Paul say? He says in 2 Corinthians, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For it's God who said, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. So as I've been preparing for this sermon and studying for the last few weeks, I've, I've been looking for something. I said, Lord, I, I, I just, this home ministry I did, this idea that you went back home and you're so intentional and you're so missional, and, but you didn't just go to the foreign land and you didn't just go, you went home where people were not impressed by you. Why did you do that? What in the world? And, and so I've just been praying, Lord, help me understand this better because this feels so personal. It feels so close to home for me. But I, I need to understand it. Just give me something to understand it. So, of course, you know, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. So I'm sitting there uh, th- uh, at Thanksgiving on, on Thursday. And I find myself in a conversation with my second cousin's husband. Somehow, I don't know, somehow I'm related to the guy. He's there all the time. So I'm there talking to him, and he says, uh, we've never talked. So, so we've never talked. He and I have never talked religious anything. Now, he always breaks the cardinal sin of bringing up politics at family dinners. He's always, he walks in and goes, how about that COVID? And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> did you just say that? He like pulls the grenade and goes, all right, y'all have fun and leaves. But anyways, we never talked about religion. Well, this year, hey, we broke both rules. <laughs> we talked about politics and religion. So we're sitting there, we're having a conversation about this current generation. And he says, and you know, it, it of course started with the service industry, you know, is just terrible now. And, and, and these, these young whippersnappers don't have a clue what they're doing. They just hate people. And I'm like, oh, sounds like you love them. But so in, in our conversation, he said, he's, he's going on and on about this current generation. And, and he says, and he says a very profound statement. And I'm listening to him you know, a little bit. And, and then everyone else slowly, you know what I mean? I'm like, we're in the conversation. Everyone else starts doing this. And next thing I know, they're all eating my turkey. And me and him are stuck there talking. And so as we're sitting there talking, he makes this statement. He says, you know, um, this generation really is more interested in getting things done than learning it from a person. And I said, time up. I said, what would you just say? And he said, well, I said, explain that. He said, well, think about this. He said, this immediate gratification with cell phones and technology, they just want to Google things and just have the answer. But he said, the way that I grew up and the way that you grew up, and he and I have a significant age difference, but I grew up in the country, you know, way out in the sticks. We had rat terriers everywhere. But I grew up a little bit, you know, different, more similarly to the older generation. So he says, the way I grew up and the way you grew up is we weren't just taught how to do things, but we were enamored with the person teaching it. And I said, that is so true. I said, and I started thinking about it. I said, that's, that, the reason why there's a 22 revolver in my tackle box is because that's what my poppy's got. I don't know why it's in there. I don't know why his was in there. We never used it. We was always just there. I just remember he always said, hey, be careful when you set that down. And one day I opened it up and I said, there's a gun. And then, you know, I was little and I said, wait a minute, why is that here? He was like, oh, I don't know. You know, I said, okay. So 
The reason why I do that is because of him. The reason why I do all kinds of things is because of him. The reason why I skin a deer the way I do. The reason why I, I, I fillet fish the way I do. The reason why I like to eat them the way I do. The reason why I do tons of things is I was just enamored with him. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't learn from, he didn't teach me really much. He didn't say, hey, now let me come show you. This is how you wire this. He never showed me how to do that. I just sat there and watched him. I just watched him. I don't know how to bait a hook simply because he said, now here's how you do this. I was just enamored with him because he had such an elevated status in my mind, and he still does. And I just watch him. And I used to say, I I just want to be like him. I just want him. And I knew that if I learned the things he he was doing, and I knew that if I enjoyed the things that he enjoyed, well, guess what? I got to be with him. I loved him, and I still do. I love him. And so it, throughout our conversation, I, my, my, my head's just exploding. I'm going, oh my goodness, you, of all people, you just gave me an illustration for my sermon. You literally just said you don't believe in God, but there's a higher power. And you were giving me an illustration. Wow, I am really stupid. And thank you. I'm glad you're here. Thank you, Lord. I'm glad, glad, glad this guy's here. How am I related to him? I don't know. But I'm glad he's there. Because I want you to just... You see, he claims that as we were talking, he says, you know, Chandler, he actually just said, he said, what kind of work do you do? And I said, oh, gosh. And Destiny goes, he's a pastor. And I said, ah, don't say that. So, you know, this guy just dropped the F-bomb four times. So he says, uh, he says, oh, you're a pastor. My dad was, you know, <laughs> I was like, okay, whatever. I don't care. So Throughout the conversation, we've, had, we've talked about all this being enamored with doing things, whatever. And he goes, you know, Chandler, me and you really kind of do the same thing. I'm like offended at that point. I said, wait, what? He said, we do. He said, you know, I do good by people. He said, I, I do good all the time. He said, and you do good. He said that really, we, we just kind of develop that thought from different places. But really, we, we both are wanting to do the same thing, doing good to people. Really, I mean, we just want, we want to be good people. We want to live a good life, be productive, be helpful to people, be kind, be loving. He said, really, it comes from the same place. And that's when I, I said, no. And I wanted so badly to not say anything at all. But I thought, no, ministry at home is more important. And I said, no, you're wrong. I said, I'm not concerned with doing good. I'm not concerned with loving people. I'm not concerned with helping people. I'm not concerned with being productive. I'm concerned with him. He said, huh? I said, his name's Jesus. And I said, because of who he is, how could I not love people? I said, you think I care about loving people? No. But because of him, Because of a personal Savior who wants to know you and wants to know me because of the man. Only then can we understand that, well, just like Jesus' example, we must be intentional where we go, missional while we're going, and personal when we get there. I tell my D group often, I'm not that proud of you, but I'm proud of Christ in you. 
I'm proud of Christ in you. So the walk away from this and the challenge to this is, well, maybe, maybe you've been neglecting the most familiar people in your life. Maybe you say, well, they know. They know the gospel and they know that. Well, Jesus, Galilee, they knew him too. But he went there anyways. Why? Because he's intentional. He's missional. And when he gets there, he, he reveals himself to people because he doesn't say, hey, I can help overthrow the Romans. Could he have? Of course he could have. He doesn't say, I could bring peace and resolve. I can bring prosperity. I can bring whatever it is. But he doesn't. He brings himself. And he comes to people like me, and he comes to people like you. And he says, stop trying to put your world together, and stop asking me to put your world together, and just worry about me. He's personal, and he loves you, and he loves me. And just like Moses could meet face-to-face with God, like a friend meets, like you would meet with a friend that, well, we have the opportunity to do that as well. So in res- response to the word of God this morning, I, I would ask that you just take a moment. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe consider the person of Jesus. Maybe don't ask Jesus, what can I do for you? Maybe don't ask, hey, Jesus, can you, can you help me here? Maybe, maybe you don't ask anything like that. Maybe you just spend a second and just say, Jesus, give me you. And let me and you walk hand in hand so closely that I would understand you and you would understand me and trust that then you'll love people, then you'll have self-control, then you'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then will we have the fruits of the Spirit. Only then when we have a personal personal, not welcoming, but honoring of Jesus. Stand with me. We'll pray and respond to the word of God. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we ask that you'll humble us, that you'll show us new ways to love you, that you'll reveal yourself to us in ways that you've never revealed to us before. God, that we will not be enamored with the things that you can do, but we will be enamored with you. Reveal yourself to us. Show us not your hand, but your face. We praise you for your hand. We thank you for it. Lord, remind us to seek your face first and spend time with you. Thank you for paying attention to sinners like us. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray.